Okay, so hi everyone. So, uh, today my, my guest is a distinguished professor who works on the political climate change. Uh, she has a new book on the issue that we're going to discuss a bit, a bit later in the interview. But before that, we're going to kind of have a broader discussion around the issue of climate change as if from a political perspective and some of the challenges facing the world and kind of dealing with this issue from, from that political perspective. Uh, so, Cathy, uh, thank you for doing this and, and, and welcome. Uh, I have to start with an admission that, uh, you know, when you learn like a second language, there's like words that you struggle to say and, and your second name. I, I, I presented you before in the, in, the, in the lecture series here, and I had to like practice for five minutes before doing it. So I leave it to you to tell me how exactly to say it. Well, my family says it is Hostetler. So, which is, it's actually much more simple than the way it looks spelled. But I've learned that it's actually a real advantage to have a name that one can't, that nobody can pronounce. Because then when I'm faced with the many people here at the LSE whose names I can't pronounce, then I can say, you know, nobody can pronounce my name. So why don't you tell me how to pronounce your name? And I also, I just don't care. You can pronounce my name however you want to. <laughs> Life's too short for me to worry about how you pronounce my name. <laughs> okay. Is it, what, what is it originally? The... It is Swiss German. Swiss German, yeah. And is that how it's pronounced in Germany or in the US? It would be Hochstetler. So Hochstetler. Hochstetler. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's that long O that confuses people. Yeah. Hochstetler, yeah. Okay, so uh, Kathy is a professor at the International Development Department at the London School of Economics. You've been there for how long, Kathy? Five years now. Five years. Okay. Can you, like, could we say, like, how did you end up in LSE? Where were you before? Well, it's kind of an interesting trajectory, partly by country and also partly by discipline because I started out as an American political scientist. So I started out in the US and my first two jobs were in Colorado and New Mexico. And then I decided, I think for fairly random reasons, but actually I was quite excited about the opportunities of moving to Canada to be part of a new school of global governance at the University of Waterloo. So I've always had multiple tracks in my research. So I've always had a foot in Brazil. So pretty much everything I do is about Brazil, but then the other things that I do can really vary a lot. So sometimes I'm writing about presidentialism in Brazil, and sometimes I'm writing about global governance and Brazil and global governance. And so I went to a global governance program and then I was contacted by somebody I know in the Department of International Development who said, you know, would you be interested in a job in environment and development? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, international development actually is where my interests really lie. And I, I was also talking with another school at that point about a program in, in environment where I would have been, you know, the development person in an environment program or an environment person in a development program. Mm. And I decided that actually what I wanted to be was an environment person in a development program, because I think that the development studies really needs to have environmental issues more mainstreamed into it, that people need to understand that these are not like some special topic that a few specialists study, but that environmental issues are really twined into most of the issues that we care about in international development and that trying to find those threads and, and teaching students, you know, we have a big master's program here and a PhD program, but teaching those students and helping them see 
that that environment is not not as not the specialist topic, but is something that really all development students should know something about was what brought me here. And um, I haven't been disappointed with that opportunity. It's been a great opportunity to, to and I've learned a lot, you know, also about how the environment issue looks like from the interdisciplinary perspective of development studies, where it looks quite different than it does from a global governance perspective or a political science perspective. How, how is that? What's the kind of the different perspective between the two? Well, I think that you're you're just always asking a different set of questions. Um, questions about inequality, for example, are always at the front of, of issues. Um, questions about you know, just what are the what are the limits of development studies? How do we think about what development is? How does environment become a part of what we think about in terms of the aims of development, but also part of how we think about how we can get there? Um, you know, that environment just has all of those dimensions, and I think I've just I just keep discovering more and more sides to the issue the longer I stay talking to people in a development department about what they're working on and thinking about, and then thinking about how that might affect um, how I look at environment. Mm-hmm. And, and that was throughout your career, that was your focus, the environmental kind of climate change politics, or is that something, because that must have changed a lot in terms of the public attention, the focus over the last, you know, now it's much more kind of mainstream, much more central to development political debates too, no? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it is definitely true that environment has become something that's much more mainstreamed. But when I first went to Brazil in 1989 was actually another moment when everybody was paying attention to Brazilian environment. And it was another moment when there, you know, there were huge amounts of deforestation and the fires were burning. And I would go to the dentist and the dentist would say, oh, you're going to Brazil. Tell those Brazilians not to burn down their rainforest. You know, so... There was, there was really a lot of attention to certain issues, but I think the understanding that's come along and probably climate change has done more for this than any other topic, you know, the understanding that, oh, these environmental issues are going to be ones that are going to be unavoidable because they're going to have consequences for just all kinds of aspects of political and economic life that we didn't necessarily think about. I mean, deforestation can be thought of as something, you know, far away in places where there are forests, but there's not really any escaping climate change in the sense that it's going to be part of people's lives wherever they live, um, whatever it means. And so I think it has become mainstream that way. But, you know, I think academics still really hasn't caught up with it in the sense that, you know, there's still just so many things that, like my home discipline of political science, for example, is really slow. I think the numbers of articles on climate change in major political science journals are like 1% or 2%. It's really, really, really little coverage for the kind of um, central characteristic that I think it's gonna be having over the next years. And development journals are better at that actually, Um, but, you know, it's still for the number of the number of impacts that we'll be having on development possibilities and development strategies and things like that. I think it's not nearly well enough studied at this point. Mm-hmm. 
So, so I was uh, today. I've re I was reading one of your papers, just kind of prepare, and and I thought. Uh, so I'm going to start with a quote that you cited in the paper, and just if you could kind of try and explain it to to me a bit. So the quote is from Scott Barrett. Uh, so he's professor of natural resource economics at the Columbia University. Uh, so he says, which you cite in your paper, global climate change is almost certainly the hardest problem for the world to address. Um, and I, I always kind of knew that, you know, I work on international trade and that's a complicated issue too, but somehow it's always like, okay, that climate change politically is much more complicated. But why, why is that? Well, I mean, like you said, this is an issue that affects everybody, all of us, you know, shouldn't that be kind of somehow simpler to deal with or... Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's what the field sometimes calls a wicked problem in the sense that it's, it's, so it's partly the issue that we've been talking about, that the scale of the impact is so wide and so varied and it affects everybody. And so the scale of the issue is huge. But the other part that comes with it is how little we know, um, so that there's a kind of fundamental lack of real knowledge about exactly how this will play out. And it's one of those cases where there's, there's a growing understanding of sort of the general patterns, but then the specific issues of, you know, what exactly will happen in particular locations and how is it that particular communities will and will not be able to respond to whatever it throws up in their locations. And even like profound uncertainty, like you think about that building that collapsed in Florida this week, you know, and at least one of the stories of what happened there is that it's rising sea level that's undermining some of the, you know, basic foundations of the building. Well, maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. Mm. And that kind of, you know, lack of understanding of exactly how climate change will manifest itself in particular places at particular times. And the fact that it, it brings such a complex set of costs and, and some benefits sometimes. I mean, there are people who will also be benefiting from climate change and, and responses to climate change. Um, and, you know, and it, and it has also just the fundamental dimension that I don't, I don't know that trade has it quite so strongly. The fundamental unfairness of the fact that the places in the world that are really going to be feeling the worst effects of climate change and the soonest are also the places that have done the least to create the problem. Mm -hmm. And so then when you try to figure out, well, how do you solve this problem and how urgent it is, you know, for a long time, people in the UK can probably go about their everyday life without being severely constricted by climate change and the effects of climate change. I mean, maybe, you know, some flooding here and there, but, you know, there are other places where the effects of climate change are sort of already very present and thinking about the, you know, both at the global level um, and then also inside countries, the kind of profound inequality of and, and, and injustice of sort of who created and who feels the effects. Um, these are things that make the politics of the issue then tremendously difficult, both in a global setting, which I've looked at, but also then inside countries and in local communities, these are things that are not easy to settle. So I think those are some of the reasons that it seems. And then, and then when you wanna think about how do you address climate change, it ends up touching everything from 
you know, how did you move from your house to work? This, I guess you said you're still, you're still at home in the pandemic, but you know, but like these very daily decisions yeah. about transportation or, you know, how you heat your house and if you have air conditioning and what you eat and, you know, there's a whole set of individual choices, but they're also embedded in a whole set of societal choices about did that public transport system get built or not? Or are you forced to drive a car? And you know, what about the larger global food system and, and the things that it brings to you and the ways that it brings them? Um, you know, it just keeps getting nested in these multiple layers um, so that it's kind of got a breadth and a depth to it that very few kinds of issues have. Mm, and is that one of the, because the way you're saying is, we already have the impact in certain places, but somehow it's always framed as like a future thing, right? So I'm always thinking, oh, if that, this would happen. So is there like less focus on what is already happening from like our kind of general debate and media and politics? Is that contributing to this kind of like, like, oh yeah, one day it would happen, you know? I think, well, both of those both of those debates are going on at the same time. So maybe that would be like one more dimension of yeah. the complication yeah. that there is sort of there is in fact there are in fact like current probable effects of climate change going on right now. You think about the fires in Australia or in the Western United States. You know, wealthy countries they can't escape this. They've got drought going on of really historic proportions. But then there is still like an ongoing debate about the long-term time frame and exactly when is it that certain temperatures will be reached and um, you know it's sort of the the time scale is also a question but I do think that this is one way in which the debate about climate change has changed for many people which is that you know for a long time it was about modeling into the future hmm. and increasingly you know, it's not about modeling into the future. It's about thinking about how you respond today to things going on or to things that are foreseeable in a pretty short time span and thinking about how it is, you know, I'm, if you're a policymaker and you're not cognizant of the fact of that impacts may be showing up in the next couple of years, um, I, think, I think you really are not paying attention but it's easy not to pay attention because you don't know exactly what's going to happen here. You don't know exactly what to do in response. You know, we, all these kinds of things are, are part of what makes it such a complicated issue. And within countries, you do have people who lose out. So that could represent politically attractive voters to certain, like, you know, the U.S. with the coal sector, for instance. Or... Oh, yeah. No, they're very clear losers. Mm. And... I think um, very, clear, very clear losers for doing action to address climate change. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they're very clear losers of climate change itself, right? Yeah. The people who will be affected by a changing climate, but you know, it, there are really clear costs. And I think I, I think I came to understand these much better as I was doing research in South Africa and paying attention to the debates there about just transition because there you do have a country that is, you know, historically 95% of its electricity from coal. And then you go to look to see how the coal economy is embedded in South Africa. You have a whole set of 
workers in the coal industry, coal mining, coal electricity, that are often black South Africans who had very few other kinds of opportunities um, to build skills or find jobs in, in the apartheid area, era and also since. You have communities that really don't have a lot of options if the coal plant shuts down, um, even though it's also been a coal plant that has made them sick and you know, brought all kinds of pollution and other kinds of problems to their communities for years. But so you have these, and then you, and then you have people who have been making money off of it um, or have been using coal as a cheap input into industrialization and things like that. So you have a lot of actors who are looking at transition and saying, well, you know, I'm worried about what's gonna be happening to my family, my community, my country, if we make this kind of transition. And so that's another dimension of it then. And I think that, you know, I was stressing earlier some of the inequality and the injustice of the way that the climate change impacts of the climate change itself are, but we also have to make sure that as we address climate change, that we don't introduce new inequalities and new injustices with the things that we do in order to try to address climate change. So that goes to the development, I don't know, is there tension or not between national development and kind of climate change, right? So a lot of developing countries argument, historically, I guess, I'm not sure to what extent that's still the case is, you're kind of imposing this high standard of environmental policy. We're losing kind of economic growth. We're losing jobs, and we didn't cause it, which is you know what you said. Uh, so you know that was I think part of the even the idea of bringing climate change into the WTO, right? So this social clause on the trade system. So 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 that comes into it, I guess, which is this idea that you're sacrificing development for climate change is that is that a, do you think there is a trade off there or is that some kind of more of a kind of wrong way to analyze this well i think that historically well and you let me let me put it like this you still will very much hear those kinds of arguments um, especially from say oil producers mm. you know, some of the countries that really have not developed much in their economies beyond you know fossil fuel extraction really are concerned um, about all of the wealth that they were, will forego um, if we stop, if we, if we undergo transition. But, you know, I think that this is one of those places where the debate has really changed a lot over the last decade. So I was at the, uh, the climate change negotiations in Copenhagen in 2009. And I would say that this was a place where you started to really see the cracks inside the developing world in that they were, after 2009, they really were articulating a lot of different positions on this. So you still had a group of the oil producers in particular who really saw this as being you know, very threatening to historic models of, of development or economy. I'm not even quite sure I would call it development, but just, you know, historic me me um, models of economy. And then, at the, then you had another set of countries at the other extreme, the small island developing states, the most vulnerable countries, you know, who were saying, you know, this is becoming an increasingly existential threat for us, climate change. And if we don't address climate change, you know, our islands go underwater, our agriculture becomes impossible. There's a variety of ways in which we absolutely, you know, must have the world take action on climate change. Our development depends on it. But then you have another set of countries that I think has been somewhat, probably the most important development for them 
has actually been in something like the growth of renewable energy. So in these same years since the Copenhagen Agreement, wind and solar power have gone from being one of the most expensive kinds of electricity to actually increasingly the cheaper forms of electricity. And so because so much of industry and national consumption and a whole variety of things are really grounded in the electricity sector, this has been just a phenomenal change of the last decade that I think has, for a lot of countries, really cut out this argument because um, there's such an, it's such an obvious way in which to decarbonize and it no longer looks like it is against, you know, pitting development against environment. I mean, there are, you know, there are plenty of things to say about renewable energy and the, you know, the, the dilemmas that come out of it then in terms of mining inputs and a whole set of things like that. But, um, but I do think that it kind of transformed the way that a third set of developing countries talked about what was possible for them. And it, and it was part of a growing literature or growing discourse of what you might call co-benefits, which was a set of arguments. That co-benefits. It, co-benefits. Okay. And, and it just basically is a term that means that, you know, you're doing something because it's good for climate change. And then it actually turns out to have other positive benefits for you as well. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you shut down some of your coal powered power plants, you know, suddenly there's much less air pollution and there are improvements in health. Mm. And so even though, you know, you, so these are, that's a co-benefit or, you know, that, that you do something like make a transition to renewable energy that you do because it is good for climate change, but now it's also the cheapest way of doing it. And so it becomes an input into industry or it makes it easier to bring solar power to communities that haven't had electricity at all. You know, there's, you know, there's a sort of, the, so then I think there's a set of countries uh, and maybe more, more to the point, a set of issues for which it looks like there's much less of a trade-off between doing the things that are right for climate and doing the things that are right for other things that countries value, like health or and, cheap and, electricity. And is that based on geography, resources, uh, type of economy? Like what determine those different countries from, from this? I mean, well, I would say, you know, there's a fair amount of it that comes from geography and resource endowments, yeah. right? So, um, so if you are a country that happens to have a great deal of oil and gas, for example, you know, that just puts you in a different position with regard to all of these issues and if you're a country that doesn't. Um, so the, the, the presence of other energy alternatives, you know, just looks really different depending on which side of that, you know, whether you're an exporter or an importer of, of energy, um, you know, just in a different position. But then countries are also geographically in places where they have really different physical vulnerabilities to climate change. But, you know, there I have to very much qualify that by saying, you know, there's nothing, there's no immediate link between physical characteristics and vulnerability. That vulnerability is a much wider concept that's also created socially and politically and economically. And that, um, you know, that you can't read them purely off of geography, but geography is certainly influential to them. Could you explain that a bit? So, 
So you said vulnerability is, can you say that again? Can you explain that? that yeah, that? so this is, this is sort of a giant point and I'm not sure I can really do um, justice to it in like a couple of minutes, but you know, if you are a low lying island state, you know, you have a kind of physical vulnerability to climate change that, you know, there is a kind of objective quality to it. And yet there's a much more complicated story that gets told about exactly what the nature of vulnerability is because vulnerability is also very much created by the kinds of economic resources that you have by your place and a whole series of social and economic and political hierarchies. People stand in very different positions with respect to decision-making and so have very different levels of sort of ability to make autonomous decisions. Um, you know, so there's a whole series of elements that come into play that affect whether or not a, a given physical vulnerability actually translates into felt vulnerability um, for different populations. I think uh, I had a friend in the PhD that was working on disasters. And when, every time I say, oh, you know, 200 people, let's say, died somewhere because of natural disaster, she'd say there's nothing called natural disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, the same hurricane, for instance, in the US, nobody would die, right? Or like something like that. So I guess that's kind of similar to... Yes, and that's certainly, yes. And, and you know, like I say, this has not really been where I've put my research, yeah. but it is certainly the case that there are lots of people who are doing work on the, on the fact that... Um, you know, all of those things that are the intervening elements between there is a kind of physical impulse mm. and there is a felt experience. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of things that fill in that gap, but I think I would definitely agree with your friend that there's very <laughs> little natural about it, <laughs> but it is much more something that grows out of, I mean, you know, again, in the South African case, almost all the vulnerabilities or, you know, impacts are affected by where you were in, in the apartheid system, mm. you know, in terms of it, you know, being a black South African just puts you on, on one side of a whole set of dichotomies. And, and of course it's not a dichotomous racial or, or anything else system, but it, you know, but it just shaped all of these life experiences. And sometimes it's useful. It's been useful for me personally to look at a country where these dynamics are so obvious because you know, it, it take, it's hard to learn about them. If you, especially if you're somebody like me, who's in essence kind of always been on the privileged side of the ledger, it can be hard to understand exactly how these things work out for people who are not so much on the privileged side of the ledger. And so seeing them in the South African case, it makes these, these dynamics very clear. Um, but they're they're multiplied in in every society around the world, so it's certainly not unique to those particularly stark cases. And so you said at the beginning you focus was always in Brazil, right? So what drew you first to Brazil and second to <laughs> South Africa? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I have bad answers to give, bad social science <laughs> answers to give. But like in Brazil, a lot of it was because. Uh, one of my aunts had actually been living in Brazil. And so I kind of knew about the country and heard Portuguese and it always seemed very cool. And so like when I went to do my dissertation research, 
I, I was I was a Latin Americanist. So I was somebody who has always specialized in Latin America. I was, you know, so like my starting point was that I wanted to study environment. And of course, Brazil for environmental issues is just one of those countries that is extremely important for any kind of environmental issue. It has um, like, it has so many of the deforestation and land issues that are central to environmental politics, but also has, I mean, 85% of Brazilians live in cities. And even back in 1989, the numbers were 75%. So, you know, very urban societies and with all of, all of Brazil's industrialization, the whole package of sort of transportation and energy and industry and pollution kinds of issues as well. So for environmental issues, you couldn't like get a more interesting country. And it was also in 1989, just coming out of military dictatorship. So I was interested in how does a transitional country take on a transitional issue kind of, you might think that. And then interestingly enough, my second case for my dissertation study was actually Venezuela, which of course at the moment is not particularly stable, but back in 1989 was one of the most stable and democratic of Latin American countries, we thought. Mm -hmm. um, and so my dissertation was then really framed at looking at how these two kinds of political systems, one transitional, one more stable, dealt with a new issue. Mm -hmm. So, but then I never actually published any of my work on Venezuela at all, like literally not a word, because even before I finished my dissertation, Venezuela was becoming something else. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the cracks in the democracy were very evident and, and, then, and then it just changed completely. And I always felt like I would have needed to go back and sort of redo my dissertation research to really understand what was going on in Venezuela. So I've kept this foot in Brazil then. Mm. And the story about why South Africa um, is again now. See, I'm embarrassing myself by, the, by all the ways in which I'm deviating. A, a second from... hand. A second <laughs> hand is there. Yeah. Well, so so the Brazil. So I've done I've done comparative work with Brazil, Argentina, Southern Cone of South America, these kinds of things. But then I was interested in, in doing a project on Brazilian energy, mm. and interested in the question of, you know, Brazil had recently found oil but it had a long standing history of hydropower and biofuels and you know so i was interested in looking at the complex set of energy issues in brazil and i was actually having coffee with peter evans this is back when i was in new mexico and his wife taught at the university of new mexico so he would come around sometimes and peter just kind of casually said you know this energy project of yours in brazil it would be so interesting if actually you did a comparison with south africa because I was looking at it through a frame of developmentalism and a new developmental state and a democratic developmental state and what does it look like and what can it do? Um, and Peter had been working on a project on the democratic developmental state in South Africa. Somebody had asked him to do some writing about it and he was writing about it. And when I looked into it and Brazil and South Africa are often actually studied together because they're kind of, they're each the regional power and they have really quite similar histories. They're always among the most unequal countries in the world. They have roughly equal levels of income, but it's badly distributed in both of them. Um, they have both of them. So Brazil made a transition out of military government in 1985. South Africa left the apartheid system in 1994. So they had political transitions. 
their federal systems with a lot of regional variation. So it, they actually have a lot in common. And uh, now here's, here's where we get into sort of more accidents of, of things. So I moved to Canada and I wrote up a proposal to do research on electricity in Brazil and South Africa in the developmental state, and it didn't get funded. Mm. So I thought about it and I thought, you know, there are also emerging powers. I had seen them in Copenhagen, really important in the Copenhagen negotiations actually for, for blocking what everybody else was expecting to happen in Copenhagen in 2009 with, with China and India. So I wrote another grant proposal that was about emerging powers in climate change as implemented in electricity projects at home. Mm. So I kept my old project, but now I made it part yeah. <laughs> of the wider framing of climate change. And so that's where it all went. Um, but it, you know, it had a kind of series of accidents. And then at the end, I realized that I had, you know, a lot of really interesting material already on renewable energy in particular in Brazil and South Africa, and then did more field work and then ended up writing the book eventually out of that. But it was, I don't know. I mean, I know that we're supposed to have our projects kind of all framed out in advance and, you know, know exactly where we're going with them. And it, this was a project that over the 10 years, wait, if 2009, so that's what, now that's 12 years, right? Yeah, over the 12 years that I've been thinking about it has actually transformed a number of times across those years. I mean, I do remember someone, another friend was doing a PhD on climate change in Caribbean islands. So impact, we always suspected that choice was, was, was too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going to the beach and the Caribbean, basically. Yeah. Well, people probably do have those kinds of motivations. I do have to say, I mean, the other, the other great reason to study Brazil and South Africa is that they are two of the best places that I have ever done field work mm. in the sense that people are really, really helpful to researchers and um, very interested in having people understand their countries and why they're doing the things that they're doing. So they're, and, and they're, you know, they have just super interesting ideas and both countries have experimented a lot with different things. And so the experience of doing research in both countries has just been phenomenal. They also have really strong communities of scholars, their own national scholars. And that's been um, just really rewarding. I have co-authors in both countries working on projects um, and it just has been a really rich set of countries um, in which to do this research in all those ways. So it's, you know, it's like everybody, you know, it's kind of obligatory in a book to thank the people in the countries where you did your research. But this is a case where I really feel like the Brazilians and South Africans first did really interesting things and then were willing to talk with me about really interesting things and write with me about them. And I think it's been, um, you know, as a researcher, it's been an incredible experience. That's great. Um... So, so I want to go back a bit to the kind of global level politics where we started. So in this paper, so, so I was just kind of, you could clarify a couple of things that I picked from, from reading today. So, so one of them is you talk about climate change as a collective action problem or aggregate effort problem. 
and you discuss if it's a rationalist approach to burden sharing. Uh, what, what, what does each of these things mean? So if we like, what, it, what would be the difference here if we think about climate change as collective action problem or aggregate effort problem? Yeah, so that's actually reflective of the, the kind of the scale of the problem, which is that it doesn't really matter where you put greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. So greenhouse gas emissions are the emissions that cause climate change. Um, it doesn't really matter whether those emissions come out of London or whether they come out of um, DACA or whether they come out, you know, it doesn't matter because the, the global atmosphere that warms is a global physical phenomenon. And so what the argument is then, and this is kind of a standard framing of the climate change problem that's increasingly questioned, but the kind of the classic argument is then that this is not a problem that can be solved by only one country because you, know, you have to think about the fact that these emissions could be coming from anywhere. Historically, they have mostly, they had mostly come from the global north, at least up to 1990 or so. Um, you know, from the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain, and you know, they had they had places they had come from, but it didn't really matter. Because, well, it did matter, but they had all, but it didn't matter from a physical point of view because they all then created this warming climate system that then affected everybody. And so the typical argument is that um, that then requires that you need everybody to be participating in the solution. And so that's like the, the, that's one part of it. So one part of it is just that it's a problem that you can't solve without everybody limiting their emissions. So that's, that's the first part. But then there's also a political kind of argument to it. And the political argument to it is the one that says, well, you know, because it is this kind of commons problem, Great Britain's not gonna do anything if the US isn't acting and the US won't act. In fact, you know, the Senate passed a resolution at the end of the 1990s saying that they wouldn't act if China didn't, you know? So, you know, like there's like very explicitly often countries have made these claims that they're worried about the so-called free rider problem and you can't get one set of actors to act unless other actors are acting as well. So then you end up with these efforts at the global level to try to negotiate an agreement that is about getting everyone to act so that everyone else will act. That's kind of the collective action understanding of the issue. Mm. But there's been a number of ways in which this has really been questioned as a framing. Um, and it's like, like they, don't, they don't all make the same arguments, but I'll just give you a couple of the, the most prominent things that get argued against it. Um, one of them is that there's a really problematic focus, especially in the UN negotiations on countries. Whereas in fact, you know, the, the amount of emissions that some British people emit versus other British people, um, you know, wealthy 
people who fly internationally, people who are part of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, certain, certain individuals and companies and whatever have clearly have quite a bit more responsibility than others. And by the same token, you have places like India where vast numbers of people make very little contribution to climate change, but you certainly have plenty of very wealthy Indians who are also part of this group. You know, so there's questions about whether the country level is even the right level to be thinking about responsibility. But negotiations take place between countries. So there could be potentially a kind of misfit there. Um, but that's only one of them. And, and I think then there's another kind of other very different kind of issue, which is that it actually turns out that when you ask questions like, do you think that your country should be acting on climate change, that actually in most countries, people are not that concerned about what other countries are doing. And it's that's just one entrance into the fact that when you go to look at what's happening in climate change, a lot of what you see is actually domestic politics or other things going on inside countries. And this has certainly been something that I've seen a lot um, in that it's not really the international level that's motivating what a country is doing on climate change, but it can be a very, very different set of negotiations inside countries. Um, and then you get to kind of a, a, a something that builds out of that, which is a broader argument that says actually climate change is the result of, and, and any kind of action to counter climate change is the result of distributional conflict at all kinds of levels. And that there's a very complex patterning of who's benefiting from this and who's not benefiting from this. And that understanding those, those power relationships and understanding all of the powerful actors who have vested interests in the status quo, that these kinds of understandings are much more relevant than looking at the, you know, the, the negotiations among a group of nation states. And so I think there's a lot of that increasing focus on the, that kind of more political argument or power argument, power-based argument about uh, the, the forces for change and the forces against change. And it kind of, that one ends up then taking apart all kinds of sectors because it, you know, there's some recent articles, for example, Jessica Green and Thomas Hale um, and someone else who I'm forgetting at the moment, but, you know, some ar arguments that actually we could look at the business sector and the most meaningful way to divide it would be between businesses whose value grows with climate change and businesses whose values grow with action taken to block climate change. I mean, that's like a gross simplification of their argument, but just arguing that actually, you know, companies have very, very different positioning with respect to climate change and that, um, you know, you can multiply that and, and actors do and that, action on climate change has much more to do with those power dynamics than trying to focus on, again, states trying to negotiate each other into common action on climate change. Um, I'm not sure that I've made, I mean, these no, are yeah, very yeah, complicated yeah. issues and I'm not sure. No, but I mean, it's interesting because you're saying it's, so maybe state level is not the best way to think about this, but then Ultimately, like you said, this is a state-centered kind of word and you, the only way to regulate or try and, and, and I'm interested in kind of a bit 
on 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 kind of the background of that. So you know, again, I know for instance in trade where you have the history of whatever the gaps and the agreements and the different. Uh, what is the kind of the global governance around climate change? Like, when did it begin as an issue to begin with at a global level? Was it just kind of, is it more of a recent issue? How how did it evolve kind of as a... Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's two ways to answer that question. One of them is kind of implicit in the way that you asked the question. And then the other one is sort of the way I talk about it in my global environmental governance class. So it, it, I think you were asking the question in terms of, you know, the UN-based negotiations mm. and institutions. Mm. And those have a very clear start date. So 1990, the countries of the world started negotiating a framework convention on climate change, which was actually signed at the Rio Conference on Environment Development in 1992. And so that's the foundation of the sort of the, the international legal framework for addressing climate change. And there was the Kyoto Protocol that came along five years later that asked um, a set of countries to wealthy industrialized countries to take immediate action and asked others to report and take voluntary action. But made this very clear distinction between you know, the wealthy countries that needed to act now and the not so wealthy countries that didn't need to act. Copenhagen was very important because what was supposed to happen at Copenhagen in 2009 theoretically, was another version of the Kyoto Protocol, another protocol, but one that would now apply to everybody. And they spent a couple of years and had a couple of hundred pages of a document in Copenhagen that they ended up tearing up and doing what came to be called a bottom-up process, where first in Copenhagen and then in Paris, they developed this strategy where countries simply said themselves what they would do as climate action. And that's the basis of those bottom-up agreements. So countries deciding themselves. Cool. So that's kind of the, the negotiation history. But one of the big themes of my global environmental governance course is in some ways to actually problematize that understanding of what global environmental governance is. Because we spend four weeks or so on UN-based negotiations and you know, all of the things about countries you know, and their arguments about whether or not they should take action. We also talk about biodiversity. So there's a set of negotiations around biodiversity as well. But then the second half of the course is actually about the trading system and um, the World Bank and the finance system and the, the rise of the Chinese as sources of finance. And looking at businesses themselves and some of these arguments about what are businesses interests with respect to environment. And so like the big, the big question of my course is, you know, what really governs the global environment? Is it these state-based negotiations or is it a governance that comes out of essentially a political economy governance that is, what really determines outcomes in terms of either environmental protection or environmental destruction, climate action or climate inaction. That, um, and so it's kind of, you know, the, the giant question of the course is, is the first half of the course that matters or the second half of the course that matters in determining outcomes and how do they relate to each other? And, you know, and it's, it's not as though they're completely separated from each other because 
if you think that the second half of the course on these political economy dynamics and institutions are what really drive things, you can certainly see them as being very influential in countries' negotiations. Mm. So that, um, you know, why is it that the protocol on biosafety that was negotiated on biodiversity says nothing in this protocol sort of can violate WTO rules on trade, you know, and so can point to some very clear influences of that political economy world on the environmental negotiations themselves. But then arguably, you know, there's a, there is a fair amount of both national and international regulation and norm setting. You know, it, it's not possible for a consumer oriented business to be completely indifferent to a whole set of environmental things. They, they can be shamed, they can be boycotted. You know, there's, there's, there's internal dynamics now of private governance for business. You know, there's just, they're not, they're not somehow separate from the process of global rulemaking and norm construction. And so at some level, the argument is that, well, all these things are going on and you know, it may be a false question to ask which of these is really driving the process because um, they can be seen to be working sometimes in tandem and sometimes against each other. And is that the conclusion of the course in the last week or? No, the conclusion <laughs> actually the very last week of the course comes around and talks about climate migration and climate or environmentally driven movement, I've learned to call it. I started out calling it climate migration and eventually it was like, well, it's not necessarily migration. And maybe it's not climate, you know. Mm. No, and in fact, I leave it. It's an open, the course is very much built to be open. We look yeah. at different theoretical perspectives, a critical political economy perspective, which is the one that really stresses the role of global political economic forces, or we look at the, the ideas of liberal institutionalism, which is more, much more focused on sort of this normative construction and rule construction. Um, and then I, I have students argue, argue where they've come down. And um, I, I think for, certainly for my course, I welcome where people come down on these issues. I mean, I, you know, I'm looking to see how they construct their arguments and where they find their evidence more than I'm looking for them to give me a particular argument about what's yeah. going on. And, and you said with the international, the first, system, if you want, the state-centered system that you spoke about. Uh, you said the, that evolved to kind of a bottom-up approach in which countries come in and they say, this is what we're going to meet or we're going to be doing. So how would that really work? I mean, if I'm a bit, I don't know, cynical about, about international governance through that, I'd say first, countries wouldn't do ambitious targets and wouldn't enforce them, maybe, if there's no mechanism to actually go through that. So I don't know, we're comparing a lot with the trade system, but trade system, you put tariffs on their, you know, you sanction countries, right? So if you mm -hmm. violate your intellectual property, your trade partners gonna sanction you for that by blocking your exports or something. Here, we don't have that, that threat, I guess. So, so how effective, like, you know, we hear a lot about Paris Agreement, for instance, but I've never really looked into the implementation, the kind of the enforcement side. Do you think that model actually could works or are you more kind of skeptical about it? Well, I mean, there's, well, there are a couple of things here. So one of them is, 
you know, the way you describe the trade regime, you have tariffs, you have the dispute resolution at the WTO and whatever. I mean, the truth of the matter is that even normal environmental treaties don't have that. Mm. So like, like, you know, the normal top-down environmental treaties are very weak. The Kyoto Protocol that was negotiated in 1997, you know, most country, many countries violated it. Or if they didn't violate it, like only, you know, only complied because they were Russia and their economy had fallen apart in the 1990s. So they could comply with it fairly readily because they had lost all their industrial production, you know, so that, so I guess this is the first part. And it's one of the things that my students, if they're not already familiar with this factor, like become very disheartened about in my course, you know, the environmental treaties are already very weak. They have very few meaningful implementation and trade. We all actually use as our example of like, oh my God, look at those trade people. Can you imagine having those tools for environment? Um, but the environment, so it doesn't have those in the first place. But even, even having said that, I mean, the, so the Paris agreement and the bottom up um, element of the Paris agreement, the Paris agreement does have certain mechanisms. So one mechanism is that every couple of years, there is meant to be a global stock take that looks at not what an individual country has done, but sort of looks at the whole thing. Are we on target? Are we getting to where we mean to to be? And the idea is that that will provide motivation then for countries to be more serious. And countries do every five years have to put in proposals for their next um, nationally determined contribution. And there's at least the hope that those are going to be more ambitious and that some of the dynamics of looking at your neighbor and seeing that they're doing their bid and you wanna keep up with them and maybe you have new things you can do because now renewable energy is actually even that much more cheap that much cheaper for you, you know, that you can actually draw on these elements to do something more ambitious. That's the hope. Um, And it's meant to be like a, it's called the ratchet effect, which is that every year or every, every five years, when you put in these new nationally determined contributions, you move forward, you do, you know, what you said you were going to do, and then you take the next step. I mean, to be honest, there, that's not looking so good in 2021 as a strategy. So 2020 was when they were supposed to do the second round of nationally determined contributions. That conference didn't happen at all because of the pandemic. Yeah. Now it's going to happen this year, this November, theoretically in Scotland. Um, but countries are starting to come out with their nationally determined contributions and they're not impressive. So... And is that the, is there a pandemic effect on that? How is the pandemic shaping this process? Like, is it leading to countries more? I mean, we've heard in the news initially, everybody saying, oh, this is it. This is Ilya Strait, why it's so important to tackle climate change. And somebody, people were like kind of positive about, you know, not that it's a positive event, but they thought it would at least lead to some sort of, but then we've heard also opposite kind of views, right? So that countries now just kind of prioritize economic rebound, growth, et cetera. Uh, have you kind of, yeah, following that? Do you have any? Yeah. Well, I've been seeing that debate. I mean, I think yeah. that, 
you know, at some level we're, we're seeing it now, right? We're, I mean, countries are manifesting them as we speak, manifesting their positions as we speak. I think in my view, the pandemic, well, I think more countries are of the, you know, we've been so busy, we've been spending so much, we haven't been thinking about this. Um, I think many more of them are in that camp than in any other camp. Mm. So I, I do think that it has effectively become that kind of um, you know, excuse or additional reason for not being particularly ambitious this year. But I think the other thing about the pandemic, and I, 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 had in my, I did my last lecture after the pandemic started in 2020. And I did at that point just kind of do some speculation in March of 2020 about what we were going to learn from the pandemic. And then I went back and revisited it in March of 2021 this year. And I didn't feel any different about it because what I said in March of 2020 was I said, you know, it is disappointing. And I think problematic in terms of thinking about what we need in climate change. So if you, if you do believe that climate change is a collective problem, a collective you know, concern and that we have to worry about free riders and all this kind of thing. And then you think about a global pandemic as being in many ways kind of structurally a similar issue. Well, the response to the global pandemic is very disheartening in terms of expecting countries to like take a global view and bringing their best game and helping other, others and everybody doing their part, you know, that's not exactly the way to talk about the global response to the pandemic. Yeah. And I think some climate scholars maybe thought that when things got bad enough with climate change, that maybe countries would then begin to get serious and step up. Mm. But I think the pandemic has been very disappointing for anybody who might still have had those kinds of, of expectations. And, and there is a kind of really negative, even more negative view about what could be coming with climate change that I think the pandemic makes us have to think about very seriously. But it's quite possible that as climate change gets worse and you know, indisputably bad and problematic in very many places that the response to it at the global level is going to be securitization where countries really turn inward. No, they won't take climate refugees when they come. Um, you know, they're going to be sort of totally focused on protecting national populations as opposed to working towards global solutions. And in my view, a lot of what I saw during the you know, the, the pandemic, and of course I am an American and do research in Brazil, you know, so these are some of the countries where much of the decision-making during the pandemic was by actors who are oriented in that direction already. Hmm. Um, but it certainly was disheartening in terms of thinking about what we might be able to expect from people as we face large scale crises and there's been very little consideration of global needs or thinking outside your country in this pandemic. So, so in that case, the worse climate change gets, actually, the more 
weaker any global solution is going to be. More countries are going to move into, like you said, securitization, just deal with whatever we have to deal with here, but ignore all this kind of global level stuff, right? Yeah. Well, in, in my mind, that's like the most straightforward reading yeah, yeah, yeah. of, you know, translation of what they did in the pandemic yeah. to a climate change setting. Yeah. It's yeah. not everybody, you know, but it's, it's, it's way too many of the most powerful countries. Okay, I, I'm already taking a bit of time, but I want to ask you a bit one final topic, which is kind of your book. So, so your book is focused on energy transition in Brazil and South Africa, correct? Uh, if you could guess, like, what is kind of the main issue you're looking at and the main kind of argument you're making? Mm-hmm. Well, I think my, my book is very much, and it's now increasingly being cited as one of these arguments that um, climate issues and, and energy transition and things like that are distributional issues that we need to look at who benefits from the status quo, who is hurt by the status quo, who would benefit from transition, who would be hurt by transition, all of those kinds of things are very much part of the core of my book, you know, that we need to look at some of the basic interests, the, the institutions, the, the history, and see then how it is that, um, you know, what, what the distributional politics of energy transition. But the other big argument that I make in the book is that we tend to look at it through the lens of just one kind of distributional conflict. And so the book is very explicit about what it calls four political economies. So four places where you can see different kinds of distributional conflict or distributional cooperation, which is also possible. One of them is with climate. And the climate one I say is the one that is kind of the most, most likely to be really confrontational. If you have an electricity system that's built on fossil fuels and you want to make a climate-based transition, you have to shut them down. You have to work against what are probably a very powerful set of actors in your society. So South Africa's coal-based transition runs from the very beginning into this coal-based industry and electricity system that's very invested in the status quo and it, it makes the whole issue of energy transition in South Africa very confrontational and conflictual. And there's a kind of pro-transition, anti-transition uh, set of actors that show up in, in essentially all the chapters. Brazil has this different phenomenon. Most of its electricity is hydropower, and it's actually much more complementary to wind and solar power Um, There tends to be a lot of wind power at the time of year when the reservoirs are low for hydropower, so they actually complement each other nicely. And so in some ways, even though Brazil has huge climate issues, they're mostly about deforestation. They're not about electricity. And so Brazil starts out in this very different place then. Even Bolsonaro and Lula, far right and left, you know, actually are both in favor of wind and solar power. So you end up with this very different, very, really highly politicized transition in South Africa on climate. And then in in Brazil, it's a much more technical, apolitical kind of dynamic. And interestingly, I'm I'm in the next couple of months going to be talking to a couple of Brazilian audiences about the book. And this is one of the things that the Brazilians are finding kind of the most interesting about the book, which is just 
they actually would like to have their electricity choices more politicized, you know, but, but it's just reflective of some of this really different framing of these issues in the two countries. And I argue it really comes from the climate political economy. And that's in both cases are kind of democratic countries too. There's no distinction on the kind of democratic authoritarian. Not on this issue, not not in the years that I'm talking about. So in both of these countries, renewable energy is an issue of the 1990s and 2000s. No, I'm sorry, the 2000s and the the first 20 years of of the 20th 21st century. And so they're both democratic during that period. And yeah, so the democracy is really not an issue. Is that a general issue, you think? Like across theoretically, is that? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, so this will take me into my, the other, so one of the other political economies. One of the other political economies is though, not about climate change, it's about consumption issues. Mm. And this is the question of, do wind and solar power help you bring good electricity at cheap prices to consumers, whether they be household consumers or whether they be um, business consumers. And South Africa has some very interesting dynamics here because this is where democracy does come up. Um, Democracies, one of the things that they do is they electrify their countries. Mm. Whereas autocracies tend not to. There's actually a pretty good correlation between this. And, and, and both Brazil and South Africa actually share some of these dynamics. In the periods when democracy was not present or was only very, very partially present, they built electricity for their industries and for urban workers, but not for masses of populations and households and things like that. And then Brazil in particular, as it became democratic, you know, steadily moved to um, provide electricity to more and more consumer groups so that it's now nearly wholly, um, wholly electrified. But South Africa had this dynamic where the apartheid government had not built electricity for black South African consumers. So at the transition from the authoritarian apartheid period to the democratic period, one of the things the democratic government had to deal with was the fact that um, almost two thirds to three quarters of the population, the black part of the population did not have electricity as late as 1994. And so it became then a very important thing for the post-apartheid government to do. Um, and I mean, I'll, I, won't, I won't go into the details. You'll have to read the book to look at that. But, um, but one of the things that I end up arguing is that wind and solar power actually didn't do much to change that kind of basic inequality of the South African system. It didn't create it, but it didn't do much to solve it. Not, not as sometimes as thought. But, but the general point is that, you know, I mean, climate change is one set of issues, but then there's this completely different set of issues, which is, do you have electricity to households? What's the balance between household and industrial consumers? And what are the prices? And all of these other kinds of things that are also a political economy of wind and solar power. Mm-hmm. And then there's one that's maybe more akin to a British. I know you're doing a, an, an interview with, um, or a mm. podcast with British, uh, Ben Hurria also, you know, industrial policy. So the other question about wind, another question about wind and solar power is, can you build an industry around it? Can you create good industrial jobs? Um, and there you have a set of policies that are, you know, more being done by ministries of economy and ministries of 
of, of um, industry and they're making choices about local content policies and the labor movement gets very involved because of questions about um, what happens to labor in this process. And so that's another whole political economy. And then there's yet another distributional <laughs> political economy around the fact that you're putting wind and solar installations in particular communities. Mm -hmm. So it's like a land issue. And that's, that gets to the birds issue. That gets to the birds. Trump, Although, you know, Trump, uh, Trump obsession with the birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the interesting thing is the birds issue becomes quite a big issue in South Africa in one place. Yeah. Yeah. But South Africa doesn't have a lot of land-based conflict actually around wind and solar power. And interestingly, Brazil has much more, but it's not a birds issue. It's actually much more an issue that has to do with um, Afro-descendant communities, former slave communities in the area where the wind power is coming in. Many times have had very, um, very informal access to land. They've been accustomed to using particular accesses to beaches and, or they have fishing and, and tourist occupations, but, but they have problematic land tenure claims. Mm -hmm. And so when a big wind power, uh, big wind power farm comes in and wants to, you know, either buy land or rent it, oftentimes these groups have been then moved out of locations and so there's a fair amount of this land-based conflict um, for these Afro-descendant communities in Brazil. And, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't link up to industrial policy. It doesn't particularly link up to the consumption issue. It's not about climate change, but it's about, you know, livelihood strategies and access to beaches and yeah, just yeah. a really different set of issues. And so the argument in my book then and if it sounds very complicated, I'm afraid the book is fairly complicated, <laughs> is that sort of all of these things are going on at the same time and they push renewable energy forward or they hold it back. And you're looking at kind of the, what's the broader picture then. And the broader picture in South Africa is that you end up having this big pro-transition and anti-transition coalition that end up fighting about essentially all the issues, mm. even though, you know, like, why would the energy utility have anything to say about industrial policy? Mm -hmm. Usually they don't, but it ends up having a lot to say about industrial policy because it's part of this big, you know, big division in the society. Whereas in Brazil, the story is just that same kind of technical story of you've got a lot of tech technicians, bureaucrats, standard operating procedures, um, making choices. The BNDES, the National Development Bank, has a local content policy because it has a local content policy for everything and it provides cheap finance. It's not about wind and solar power per se, it's just it's got this policy. Um, you know, so you have that kind of phenomenon in Brazil. So it's just then looking at these really different, you know, it's, it's all wind and solar power, but the politics of it between the two countries end up being remarkably different. And, um, and, and I, you know, my broader argument is that these are new industries and sometimes we talk about them as though like they drive the outcomes, you know, like the technology drives the outcomes. But I argue that actually countries bring their old political economies 
to a new industry mm-hmm. and that the development of the new industry actually will be much more shaped by apartheid or by, you know, the Afro-Brazilian land claims or, you know, BNDS's industrial policy for 50 years has been this, so it does it again, that these kinds of enduring um, relationships and histories really shape then how two countries take on the same new industry. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, I took already a long time. I think I could ask you for two more hours. So I'm going to stop here. And I guess, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Kathy. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, in the future, I don't know, you have more plans for new work on Brazil, South Africa? Or? Oh, we'll have to see. I'm head of department now, so I have to figure out what's possible while being head of yeah, department. Yeah. But <laughs> it's time to be head of department, though. No? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm not gonna... I, I look forward. I'm going to look for your other podcast. So yeah, yeah, sounds good. So I'll send you the link once once it's all uploaded. All right. Thanks a lot, Kathy, and yeah, have a nice rest of the day, and see you in the future. Okay. Thank yeah. you. It was interesting. Thank you for the time. Bye. Bye.